This is a Tadad podcast. Today's podcast episode was recorded in March of 2021, three months before Ms. Victoria Perry retired from the Fiscal Affairs Department at the International Monetary Fund. Welcome to the Tadat Podcast. My name is Claudia Salgao from the Institute for Capacity Development. And I'm Annette Schmitz from the Tadat Secretariat. On today's episode, Annette and I chat with Ms. Victoria Perry regarding her career in taxation as she hangs up her boots at the fund. I would like to say it is an honor to interview Vicky today. I have worked under her for six years. Usually we introduce our guest speakers, but today we have decided to let Vicky introduce herself. So Vicky, over to you. Oh, thank you. Thank you very much, Claudia and Annette for having me. Um, I really appreciate that. I believe the reason we're having me is that I am a longtime FAD staff person, 28 years of doing tax policy and administration, but I am currently deputy director in the fiscal affairs department um, with various responsibilities, but my my FAD career uh, has spanned my entire 28 years in the fund um, as I'm really a specialist in taxation. And before that, my career was all about taxation as well, for a bit in the private sector, then a bit in academia, and then at the IMF. So it's great to be here. We're happy to have you. And I think some of our listeners will want to know, and we're going to go way to the beginning of all of this, of like two-year-old Vicky um, <laughs> in the sandbox or on a swing set. What, what made that spark? What made you think, oh, taxes is what I, what I want to do for the rest of my life? Well, I guess if, if a therapist were here, we might go back to my very early childhood when my father did a lot of um, estate planning work in his job. And there were what used to be older listeners here may recall something called CCH binders before we had computers, which uh, embodied tax law and, its, uh, and regulations and commentary. And those were, some of those were on the shelf in our, in our living room. And I was always very curious about them. Time lapse. <laughs> I, I became interested in law more generally. I actually went to law school. I was an economics major in college, but then I went to law school. And when I got to law school, I discovered a great interest in tax law but especially from the policy side, I think, um, because it overlapped with economics and kind of social policy. And I think that's why I'm still interested in it. It it does embody social policy. It embodies, you know, a society's plan for how it's going to finance its government and what its government's going to be like. And I found that really interesting, but I guess I also like the highly technical bits of it too. so I wound up becoming a tax lawyer after law school. And I did that for six or seven years in a law firm, corporate law, partnership law. Um, but then my policy interests sort of got the better of me. And I decided, I thought, to become an academic, but that's when I got involved with working with country governments. Um, 
in the, the program I was part of, the international tax program at Harvard, was engaged in technical assistance on tax to developing countries. And that's where I got a taste of that. And then I moved to Washington. And after I moved to Washington, with that experience, I kind of wound up at FAD. As I think Claudia knows, at least, I wound up at FAD for two years in 1993. But then somehow I never left. And so here I am. And I've loved it ever since. So that's how I got here. And on that road of getting there, I assume that in law school, it was a male-dominated field to go into taxation specifically. And then after that, um, how was it going into that world where there are hardly any women around? And then in the fund after, what was that experience for you? Well, when I was a lawyer, it's true there were more men. Uh, I was in a big corporate law firm in Boston. There were by then a number of women, including somebody who was a bit of a mentor to me, who did estate planning also um, at that point, um, and was the first woman partner in that law firm. Um, but we did used to joke, uh, a female friend of mine who was also my age, we would go to the American Bar Association tax meetings and it was the only place we ever went where there was a huge line for the men's room, but absolutely no problem with the women's room. There were really actually very few women at that point, but it changed fairly rapidly, I would say. That's certainly not true now in the world of tax, um, I would say. I mean, I think there are still, the economics profession, I think, would say there's still a bit of a gap in women sometimes in parts of the economics profession, but same with the fund. When I got to the fund almost 30 years ago, there were much, many fewer women, but it wasn't like it had been 10 or 15 years before that when there were hardly any. Um, and certainly now it's changed. Obviously, everybody who's listening now will probably realize it's changed a lot. Um, I wouldn't go so far as to say, you know, it's all completely equal numbers, but I mean, really... Um, one expects to find women in meetings. And I remember when I was first in the FAD senior staff, there was certainly a period when Teresa Terminasian was the department director, but she and I would be the only two women in the senior staff meeting. Um, that is completely different now. So I think for younger women coming up, it's, it's really changed. It wasn't terribly problematic, actually, um, for me personally, coming up that way. Um, thinking back to my experience in law, my law firm in the 80s, I never found it um, a problem, but there were fewer of us. It's true. <laughs> it must be said. When would you say it was the time when it started shifting? When did you start seeing more and more women joining? And what do you think spurred that change? Was it active policy from the top? Or is it just, you know, because more and more women obviously are becoming more educated and getting these higher degrees and going into more technical fields or, or both? Well, in taxation, and, and I'm speaking of U.S., the world of U.S. taxation, since that's what I sort of came up from. Um, 
I think just as with lots and lots of fields, I think it was more general. It wasn't anything about tax. It was a more of a general generational shift. When I went to college, a third of the class was female. Now, for most, many, as, as people will have read, the majority of students in higher education are actually female now. And that is a huge change. It's a, it's a societal change. I wouldn't attribute it to tax or economics uh, in particular, I guess. And in the fund, some of what's happened in the IMF reflects that general social change, although obviously the change has been different in different countries and the IMF picks that up. So it reflects that, but it also now, as everybody's probably aware, it reflects a conscious effort um, at inclusion um, in the IMF. And uh, one of the things I've done in the IMF in recent, I mean, in my job in the last few years is to be sort of active in the uh, Diversity and Inclusion Council um, that was set up a number of years ago. Um, and I think one of the things we learned from that is not just about women, but about any kind of underrepresented or potentially excluded group or person even, that the most important thing is to make sure that everybody around her or him makes a conscious effort in an intentional way to try to make sure that people feel included, but also are given the tools to be included in a meaningful way. And so that's one of the things I've been kind of concerned with and working on, the inclusion side of diversity and inclusion, I think. Vicki, you mentioned FAD. How do you think FAD has evolved from where it was when you joined to now? We all know it's grown exponentially, but in what way have you seen it evolve? And where do you think it's headed towards in the future? Well, that second part is certainly harder to predict. Um, as, as somebody once said, it's very easy to predict the past. Um, it's changed a lot. To some extent, there are pendulum swings in the evolution of FAD as in the evolution of most things, I guess. But maybe just to name a couple things. When I joined in the early 90s, our capacity development work, which is what I really joined to do, was very segmented from... FADs and the fund's surveillance and program lending work. I mean, that's a bit of an overstatement because always I think there was conditionality in program lending and some of that would relate to FAD's area of expertise. But the emphasis we now have on integrating our capacity development expertise with this, the surveillance and lending side is... is um, really a big shift and it's been a long it's been a long road to this it didn't happen overnight but a lot of our listeners will be aware that there's the current situation is much more to help us inform the area department teams and as well as the country authorities about issues that we would call capacity development technical micro issues in FAD on the spending and tax side and so really back in in 1990, I'd say in a way there was, I mean, it was much more of a separate thing, even though, of course, we always talked, I mean, not to exaggerate it, we always, when I was doing capacity development in the mid-90s extensively, we always talked to the area departments 
um, obviously we talked to the governments, that's what we were doing, but we also talked to the area departments. But the conscious effort to integrate the two and the conscious thinking of everything as a seamless whole almost in a way is different. So that's a change. You referred to the huge expansion of of FAD. And a lot of that has come from bringing in external funding for capacity development from donors, bilateral donors, largely countries. And that has facilitated this expansion. Um, it's a bit different in the sense that some of that finances more programmatic approaches, long-term, medium-term engagements for institutional and policy reform now embodied in something we've been referring to as the medium-term revenue strategy, just on the revenue side. But I think, again, it's never been black and white, one thing or the other, but a while ago, I would say there was more kind of one-off activity maybe than there is now. But that's still important because we do give advice to more advanced economies where they have a specific sort of technical problem and to emerging countries where they don't necessarily need a long-term um, programmatic engagement, but they do need or want, they want our technical advice. So I'd say that balance has shifted a bit. There's a lot more emphasis right at the moment, at least on fragile and conflict-affected states. Certainly a lot more emphasis on specific topics like climate and even inequality, which require input of the kind of thing that we do in taxation in, in the fiscal affairs department. To some extent, that reflects the changes in the world's and therefore our shareholders and our, our members' concerns. But I think to some extent, it reflects the fact that even in the lowest uh, capacity countries that have a real resource constraint, there's already more of a baseline. The baseline of understanding has really increased in the last 25 years. I started out, I came to the fund to work on the countries of the former Soviet Union at that point, as we called them. And for obvious reasons, despite the fairly high level of, of education of people there was very little understanding of how a tax system operated in a capitalist economy. And so the baseline that we were trying to help our counterparts and the governments work from was quite a bit different than it is now, I would say. So that now we're operating at a much more globally integrated and higher technical level of advice than we might have been 25 years ago for a lot of our countries, um, our members. So it's changed in that sense too. So just a little to add on to this. So in the last 28 years that you've been at FAD, what what would you say your like of all the capacity development initiatives that you were part of, all the technical assistance that you've provided, what are you most proud of? Oh, wow. Um, wow, what am I most proud of? <laughs> There's a lot, I've certainly done a lot of different things that I hope were valuable to the countries, which is the main thing. Um, I think our, 
not just me, but I think our work, broadly speaking, on trying to help with the transformation of the economies of the former, the formerly planned economies, I think that was very significant. Um, I'm proud of some of the, like, the book we put out following on from that, although that wasn't what it came from, but uh, in 2000, we put out a book called The Modern VAT, which took a long time and was a lot of work, but I think made a bit of a, was kind of a, a second landmark in the VAT after Alan Tate's book in 1986 um, on the value-added tax, who was the deputy director of FAD at that point. Um, so I'm proud of that. Um, I've certainly had an awful lot of interesting experiences in technical assistance. Um, partly just getting to know the people in the countries. You get to know people. Obviously, people at the IMF will all recognize this. You get to know your counterparts and the country authorities in a way that you don't get to know people when you're just like touring through a country. And I think certainly that's been among the most gratifying things that I've I've done. I'm still kind of friendly with a number of people from even years ago with whom I worked in, in country governments. And that I think has been, you know, maybe the most gratifying thing outside my colleagues. You forgot to say hiring me, Vicky, but I'll well, I'll yes, yes, <laughs> yes. Yeah. I forgot to say also that I think partly I'm here because for years Claudia was our lead assistant in tax policy when I was the division chief for tax policy, and so uh, Claudia and I go way back. <laughs> All right, Vicky. So one of the other questions we had for you is that how do you feel it's been for a woman to move up, meaning get promotions and, and go up the ladder to reach to the top? You have gone through different stages in the fund as an economist and then a division, senior economist, division chief, and then jumped the ladder to deputy director. Um, and not only in the field of economics, but how do you feel in general? What does it take for someone to go to the top in general? And how do you get there? And do glass ceilings need to be shattered? <laughs> or do we not shatter them anymore? Or do something different with these ceilings? <laughs> you know, I didn't really feel like I was shattering a glass ceiling um, when I did it. I never really expected to become a deputy director in the fiscal affairs department. I expected to come for two years part time and then leave again. Um, 25 years before. So um, I guess in a way, I was almost surprised that it just evolved the way it did. I guess I didn't really feel as if this is facile because I know it's not true of everybody. I didn't really feel as if it was hard because I was a woman. Um, it was hard because the work is actually pretty hard. Um, and developing the understanding of each new step was was hard. Um, I became division chief acting and then division chief of part of our revenue administration, 
work. And I wasn't really a revenue administrator, so that was hard. Um, but I didn't feel as if it was hard, as I say, because I was a woman. I do think, again, I hope this is changing, but I do think it, it, it was hard and still is hard as a woman with kids, actually. Um, because, mostly because of the traveling. And these jobs, at least until this past year, involved a lot of travel. Um, but I will say that FAD has been very good and very flexible in that regard. Um, just to name something personal, at one point I had a sick kid and a sick parent <laughs> simultaneously. And FAD was just terrific about saying, you just, you don't have to travel right now. Um, I don't know that that would have happened 20 years before that. Um, and also on the forward looking side, I don't think it's ever going to be easy to do these jobs with kids, but I think it's, it's going to be just as hard for my male colleagues because I was telling somebody the other day, I was saying in a meeting, well, why don't we get X to, can we get X to work on that? And somebody, and X is a guy, a younger, much younger than me guy. And somebody said, oh no, we can't get X because X is on paternity leave for three months. And I just thought like, this is fantastic. Like, this is how the world is going to change. Um, it's never going to be easy to do these travel jobs with kids, but it's going to be hard for everybody, <laughs> so to speak. It's not all going to fall on the, the female side. And I think, I do think there's been progress. It may not seem like it sometimes at any given moment, but if you sort of look back at where we came from, the world really has changed. It's not there yet. I would never say it was. And again, I'm speaking about life in a advanced liberal economy. It would be incredibly presumptuous and also totally wrong of me to say that it's the same situation for women in a lot of our lower income and different culture countries. And I think that in a way for the IMF is almost, you know, the next frontier. I mean, for the IMF and everybody who works with um, development. Again, not to say that everything's perfect in, in the US or Europe or whatever. It's not, but progress has been made, I think, in this regard. And I think a lot more progress needs to be made to help make sure girls get to go to school, girls get health care, women get health care. I mean, that's really, that's what to me is most important now. I mean, those are matters of kind of life and death. Um, so I guess I'd say that. And we really need to work on that. We, the world, not just we, the IMF. Something you mentioned earlier piqued my interest a little bit. And I was wondering if we could, if you had maybe a little story you could share with us about what was it like when the, the former Soviet Union, you know, kind of... <laughs> you know, went the way that we know it went now. And you're told, hey, Vicky, um, we're going to, you know, go into one of these countries and provide some technical assistance. 
and you know nothing, right? You know very little. Well, no, you, you don't know nothing, but you 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 know very little, <laughs> perhaps. Yeah. And you 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 don't really know what to expect. So how how did you prepare for that? Like, how can you share with us, perhaps, like a little story about an experience you had? Well, the first fun? country I went to for the fund was actually Georgia. And it was immediately after the Civil War in 1995. So things were pretty bleak. I mean, there were bread lines, literal bread lines. There were bullet holes all over the, the government buildings. There was no heat in the Ministry of Finance and everything was leaking. Although interestingly, there was some heat in the Revenue Administration. And part of the reason for that was because, you know, the Revenue Administration collected the money, so they had a bit more power. <laughs> um, but it was fascinating because we sat, I remember, I was just an, a, you know, an economist on the mission, but we sat every day, and it was really like teaching almost. We sat with a couple of people who really wanted to know how these taxes worked were supposed to work if you had capitalism and I mean really that was one of the most interesting experiences I, I ever had I think um, it was clear that we were I mean we would we had a dialogue for days basically um, in front of a space heater because it was winter and uh, I mean, that's what it was like back in the the lower income former Soviet Union in the early to mid 90s. Um, obviously, like huge progress was made. Um, and it, it's nothing like that now. But it was really interesting because you sort of thought, well, they need to start with something that is totally different from what they were doing. It wasn't even just, you know, we had a leftover tax code from 1960 and we need to update it. It was just like a totally new thing. And that was really interesting thinking about how do you help a government develop that? Um, so I'd say that was probably one of my most interesting experiences. And it was really one of the first ones I had. Amazing. Wow. They certainly, that country in particular, certainly did a great job of developing such things. Um, so I only name that, I mean, I'm not picking on Georgia, in fact, quite the opposite. Um, it just happened to be the first place I, I went to do this work. So, and it's beautiful too. So that was really fascinating. I'm so happy you shared with that, that with us. Thank you. It's just, I, I can't help but think about you know, crisis, times of crisis and how there, there are such benchmarks for, for introducing change and, and especially what we've lived through this past year with COVID-19. Um, you know, are, 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 is it going to in fact be a great reset as, uh, as we've been, as we've been saying, you know, um, so just. Well, I think everybody's thinking about in what ways it will be a reset in lots of different ways. We're thinking about how will it be a reset in terms of having not been able to travel at all for a year, but still trying to keep up with our um, all of the funds work. Um, what will we keep from this period and what will we go back to? 
So that'll be a reset. Um, thinking about inequality, especially, and how it's been exacerbated by this past year everywhere, across among countries, within countries, um, and how are we going to help the world address that problem, I think, is going to be, I hope, a reset. You can see that if you just sort of look around and read things, not inside the fund, but in general. Um, so that's kind of a reset, hopefully. Hopefully we're having a reset on climate at this point, um, the world. So there's an awful lot of transition and change, I would say, going on. There's, for those who are really technical tax nerds, there's a lot of interesting reset and change going on in international corporate tax, but we won't go into the, we won't delve here into the details of that. You know, that's a reset too. Speaking of change, Vicki, um, are you planning anything for your retirement after being on the go and ready to deal with anything for the past 28 years here at the fund? Um, do you have any plans for the future besides trying to save the world? <laughs> I don't know if I'll save the world, but I am planning to take a couple months of vacation at least this summer. Um, I plan to keep doing... I don't know what exactly, but I do plan to keep interested and involved in kind of the wonderful world of tax, but I'm not sure exactly how at this point. Um, but I will do that not full time, I think. If things change for the better, I plan to spend more time traveling for fun as opposed to for work um, with my husband. Plan to spend more time with our kids who are grown up. Hopefully that's in their plans too, but we'll see. <laughs> um, so there's a lot to do and I, there's a lot of other stuff to do. I mean, I could actually learn to speak French finally, instead of just read it. I could, um, all sorts of things. I could actually exercise. And uh, so there's a, there's a lot I would, I would uh, do. What about both, both tax-wise and not. How about a postmodern VAT book? <laughs> We've said that for years. It's been 20 years since that came out now. I don't know if we'll ever get to the postmodern VAT or not, but uh, we did just put out a book, another book that I was edited and did a couple chapters of called uh, Corporate Income Taxes Under Pressure, which relates back to what I just said about a reset for corporate income taxes. Um so there may be more stuff like that, but that's a little plug for corporate income taxes under pressure available online for free from the IMF. Any thoughts of teaching, Mickey? I love teaching actually. Um, I've always liked teaching. I could imagine teaching some classes. I don't think I want to get a full-time job as a professor teaching, you know, six classes a year. But I would like to do some teaching, yes, actually. And leading into that, um, do you have any advice to give for future economists looking into the field? The field of economics or the field of tax? We can uh, start with both and then just young professionals in general as well. Well, my general advice, I think, would be do things that interest you. Do things because you think they're interesting and important 
and not because you sort of think you should or it will make more money or, I mean, obviously you need a certain amount of money, but not to denigrate that. But I think you do best when you're doing something that you find interesting. And I guess that's why I stayed so long at the IMF. It was always interesting for 28 years, which I think a lot of my colleagues who aren't at the IMF and do other or other things don't feel like they can necessarily say that if they stayed in one place all that time. So I feel really, really lucky to have been here and been able to say that. Any last parting words of wisdom? No, I don't think I have that much wisdom. I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, uh, <laughs> I wouldn't deign to say here's the last word of the parting word of wisdom. But I do just want to thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. And I hope that anyone who's actually now young and doing economics or tax or other related fields does think about joining the I trying to join the IMF because I do think I really believe in the institution and I think it's it gets a bad rap sometimes, but I think it really is the people who work here really are trying to do things that help the world. So yeah, think about the IMF. Thank you so much, Vicky, for joining us and letting our listeners have a little peek into um, you and your life a little bit. So thank you so much. Thanks for having me. The TEDAT Podcast is available free of charge. The views expressed in the TEDAT Podcast are those of the authors and do not necessarily represent those of the International Monetary Fund or the IMF Policy. Materials from the podcast may be reproduced with proper attribution. Comments and correspondence may be emailed to podcast at tedat.org. TEDAT is a collaborative undertaking of the following partners. France, Germany, the International Monetary Fund, Japan, the Netherlands, Norway, Switzerland, the United Kingdom, and the World Bank.